Welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. We are here in the United States. The president is abroad as we speak. He was in England, Portsmouth, England, then heading to Ireland, then heading to Normandy. Mm-hmm. I'll have some things to say about that. This is the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Trump for those who need translation or who just want to hear it. We take a look at the current administration. We address many of the existential threats to America, both at our border and abroad, China, and um, any and all sources. John Hinderocker, who also takes a look at such things from Minnesota, is a very popular guest on the show. He's with us today. He's one of the founders of Powerline, which is a great, what do you call it, blog? Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. And he's the president of the Center of the American Experiment there in Minneapolis, St. Paul. We'll also hear from Robert Costa, Bob Costa. He's a national political reporter for the Washington Post. Now, before you hang up or turn off, just Costa's fine. <laughs> I know him. He's Notre Dame graduate. Mm-hmm. I know that doesn't necessarily say anything either. Oh, watch it. Watch it. I know. Didn't we just have something about this with you and Notre Dame? Yeah, and, we, yeah. yeah we had a little. I'll bring that up again. Right, right, national political reporter. He was um, National Review. He's a political analyst now for NBC News and, dare I say it, MSNBC. Bum, bum, bum. But he puts yeah. it straight. <laughs> and he's the moderator of Washington Week on PBS. Uh, but let me discuss the president's trip a little bit and some other related things. You don't need much from me today, folks, by myself. I do a fair amount of my own uh, thinking and talking here with um, with John Hinderocker uh, and, right. uh, and with Bob Costa. But I will say this. I, I think this trip of the president's is very good for the president. And I think it's going to be good for his approval rating. Um, and it's fine. Let Trump be Trump, and he is Trump, and he was very Trump-like with the mayor of right, yeah. London and uh, talking about Boris Johnson. And what did he call the mayor of London? Stone Cold. Uh, Stone Cold Loser, I think. Stone right? Cold Loser. Yeah. Have I ever called you that? <laughs> no. You ever no. called me that? No, of Behind course my back? No, okay, of course right, not. Fine. For the record, too, for the podcast and everyone listening, I have said on many of occasions that Dr. Bennett is the best person I've ever worked for. Oh, my goodness. The best. And I just want to say, again, I mean, this is unprompted. I mean, this is coming from the heart. The best, hands down, period. I don't know what I do. Except, and I've worked for a lot of people. but I don't know what I do except make more trouble for you. Well, I mean. Ask you to do more things. We have good lunches. Yeah, we do. <laughs> now, uh, that means that means I'm a better boss than Mrs. Bennett? Okay, I think you better dodge yeah. a little bit there. <laughs> the second best boss of the <laughs> <laughs> I will take that. Anyway, um... I think that he's. I think he's doing fine, and uh, the British press overall very good to him. But uh, I was saying, I love the tweets. I love, I love the style with Trumpy Trump. But he was quite presidential when he needed to be, and when he had to be, and when he should have been presidential, he was. And good for him. Uh, good for him for that. And uh, I think conducted himself very well. We're just we're just uh, talking about this on the eve of Normandy. Uh, and his appearance there, and I'm sure that'll that'll go in a stellar way as well. But uh, no, I think I think it's fine. I'll tell you, we are now, I think, pretty close to the breaking point, the tipping point on the border stuff. Yeah, and we've really got to get through on this. My question is, when do the American people see the urgency of this? I don't know if if the uh, other networks, ABC, NBC, ran this footage of that those th- thousand people going through that fence. ABC talked about it on Good Morning America. I don't think they ran the video, yeah. but they, they spoke about it. People I mean, have got to see this, and they have got to say to the do-nothing Congress, give you know change these asylum rules. Mm-hmm. I mean, the pressure on the Mexican government is fine with me. I think that's fine. They can do more. They could do a lot more. Um, but, um, but, you know, the Congress has got to act here. 
breaking point. I mean, I, I, it, the system is broken down. It just can't handle us. And the more people who come, the more trouble there is. And the more people are going to get sick and the more people are going to die because they right. contracted some illness along the way. And that's going to be blamed on the Border Patrol and ICE. So um, really got to get ahead of this. Thing. Absolutely. And standing around screaming, we're not going to build a wall. President Trump is this. President Trump is that. That doesn't fix anything. Right. Okay. No wall. Fine. Then what? Then right. what? Well, then what? Then, well, then what? Then what? Ask them if they were, we're going to impeach Donald Trump or for sure we're going to impeach Bill Barr. Right. Or whatever it is, uh, whatever tear it is they're on. Looking increasingly irrelevant mm-hmm. is what they are. Yes. So uh, we shall see. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Bill Bennett Show. John Hendricko joins us now. John, um, first of all, uh, what do you think of the president's trip to England and Ireland and Normandy? Well, it seems to be going well, doesn't it? Um, yes. You know, the, the Trump's enemies are always trying to delegitimize him, right? It's always like uh, he's different, you know, he, he's unique. Uh, other presidents should be treated with respect, but not Trump. You know, he's in a category by himself. He's illegitimate. And and I, I think the overriding thing about this trip to England is that he's being treated as a normal president, you know, as he should be. So he meets with the queen. He meets with the royal family. He has this fabulous event at Buckingham Palace. And, you know, and I think that's helpful to him uh, to have, you know, that this uh, the constant effort to delegitimize him um, and treat him as some kind of outcast. Uh, obviously, as after this visit, you know, it hasn't happened. Yeah, and even um, standard U.S. president demonstration, unlike the predicted, what, quarter of a million, it was a standard sort of George Bush-sized demonstration, right? 70,000. You know, Bill, I made the comment on Powerline. I happened to be in London years ago when George W. Bush was in office and he was visiting visiting London. And there was a big anti-George W. Bush demonstration. There are people lined up across the street and Blah blah blah. You know, George Bush is a fascist. Blah blah. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't. I don't think there's any any bigger. You know, it's not hard to turn out a demonstration in 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 London against an American president. You know, if you try. Yeah. But yeah. I don't think this one was any bigger than what they had against uh, George Bush. Right now, there were Trumpian moments. That is the exchange with uh, Mayor Khan, right? Yeah, and as usual, Khan started it though, right? Yeah, right. Exactly. Trump is a counterpuncher, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and Meghan Markle, and Meghan Markle, you know, yeah. I, I'm guessing Trump is probably only vaguely aware of who she is, but somebody uh, sort of buttonholed Trump and started quoting things that Meghan Markle had said about him, and Trump said, "Oh, I didn't realize she was she was that nasty," you know, referring to the things she had said about him. So then the headline is. Trump calls Meghan Markle nasty. <laughs> let, let me ask you something right there. Is were, were the critics and the people who seem so upset, dyspeptic on this, taking advantage of the the neologism nasty, the, the new meaning of nasty? You know what I'm saying? Oh, I don't think so, Bill. Maybe I, I'm not. Nasty means confused. what unpleasant and you know and and, and, yeah. and mean. Yeah. But nasty has you. come to mean you know loose and so on. Yeah, I don't think so. Maybe. Okay, I, you know, I'm okay, not as tuned okay. into some of those things as I might be, Bill, but I don't think so. I think they're just unfairly, you know, he's giving a, you know, an off the cuff response to somebody who who quoted 
things she said about him. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's saying that the things she was saying about him were nasty, you know. And they certainly and were. I, they certainly they were. were. And, they, yeah. and then they were. And, and you know, in this, this nice interview that he did with uh, uh, Piers, uh, what's his name? Piers you know, Morgan, on, yeah. On, on, yeah, on British television. Um, you know, he talked about that. You know, uh, Morgan asked him about, about the, the thing with Meghan Markle, and he explained, and 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 Piers asked if he'd uh, if he'd met Prince Harry, and Trump said, "Oh yeah, I had a wonderful conversation, long talk with Prince Harry." You know, so you know, I, I but one thing that you see about the press coverage too, Bill, which I think is kind of revealing, is if you if you look at like the BBC, apparently they had like this this balloon of Trump wearing a diaper, you know, yeah. in their studio, you know, an imitation of that, you know. So of course they're 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 snarking on Donald Trump. But if you look at if you look at, at at the Sun and the Daily Mail, you know, which are the newspapers that people actually read in London, um, you know, it, it's very much like the U.S. You know, the the so, the so-called elite media are are you know viscerally anti-Trump, uh, but the people's media are, are giving it you know good, straightforward, positive coverage. About the American media's coverage, there was I just saw a feature on Fox contrasting the British, which is, you know, there are a lot of liberal papers there, but they, I think they even quoted some of the liberal papers, which were pretty good on Trump compared to yeah. what was going on here. Yeah, yeah, and and, and I, uh, I I've read some articles in the Times of London, you know, and they've been I think straightforward reporting. I, I noticed that there was a piece in the Washington Post. I, I just saw the headline. I didn't even bother to click through and read it, but the headline was something like. Uh, Trump is still delusional about his standing overseas, or you know something like that. Yeah. Right? You know, it's just the same old, same old. Um, and, and I guess the question at this point, Bill, is whether there's anybody left who cares. You know, you mean about that kind of criticism? Who, who could be influenced by anything they say? in the Washington Post or the New York Times or, or CNN. I'll, I'll remember this. Our next interview coming up is with Bob Costa, who's the national political reporter of, of the Washington Post. So we'll we'll, we'll see if yeah. democracy is, is going to die in darkness or not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's very nice to, to, what's her name, Theresa May, the, the departing PM. Yeah, very gracious toward her. I, you know, people who have met Trump, and I, I've been in a room with him, but I've not spent time with him one-on-one, but... Everybody I know who has actually spent time with him comments on how nice he is in person. Yeah, yes, you know, yeah, yeah. He, uh, he can be abrasive in public, you know, in the media, but in person, everybody everybody says he's very nice, and and I think you're seeing the the fruits of that here in in some of these relationships. Yeah, no, he's very nice to me. I had a meeting with him at his golf club in New Jersey. And uh, he ordered a big breakfast and he said, "Why are you staring at my plate?" And I said, "Looks good." He said, you want a sausage? I said, sure. He flipped one over to me. <laughs> that's, a, a guy, that's a guy from Queens and a guy from Brooklyn. You know, that's just. Yeah, just the way yeah it right. Hey, I've seen you eat, Bill, and, and you're okay. a guy who enjoys Oh, Hinder uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, Rocker. All right. We'll, we'll cut that out, Claude. We'll cut that out. No, no chance. No, no chance. chance. No chance. <laughs> All right. So, anyway, success. And then I think uh, the Normandy thing will will be amazing. I'm going to go on a little TV and talk about this. Uh, the main thing I want to talk about is the, 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 the not the letter Eisenhower wrote, but the note that Eisenhower wrote. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, it was a gracious uh, gracious note saying that the, the man had done everything that uh, courage could do, and, it, right. and if there is fault, it attaches solely to me. Uh, there's a myth that uh, Churchill was opposed. He was 
opposed, critical, wondering, worrying, and thinking maybe there was a better place to do it. But at the end, in Eisenhower's memoir, um, Churchill came around a few days before. And uh, and so that's good. I mean, but the, the risks were incredible. I mean, if it had failed, uh, the war would have been prolonged. A lot of people think we would have ended up nuking Germany rather than Japan. And, uh, yeah, you know, that's you, right. You know, know, I happen to be reading Andrew Roberts' biography of Churchill Good. right now, and I was okay. just reading about this like yesterday. Oh, go ahead. Know? Yeah, tell us and, what. And I think, you know, and I think if I, to distill down at least what Roberts says, you know, there had been talk about an invasion much earlier, like in 1943, which Churchill thought was premature. And Churchill always had the idea that, you know, shouldn't shouldn't we try to take the the southern route, you know, through the Balkans, the Mediterranean yeah. route, which yeah. A, would be easier, and B, would help to cut off the Russians. You know, he was already looking ahead yeah. to the post-war alignment, and you can debate whether he was right or wrong about that. It certainly was not a foolish concept, but no, you're absolutely right. He was he was totally and wholeheartedly uh, behind the uh, the D Day invasion. Uh, but the, but you bring up a great point because I think one of Churchill's uh, worries and others' worries was if it failed, Europe uh, you know might have been overrun by um, by the Russians. You know, and we, all of all of Europe might have ended up. Uh, yeah, it's hard to it's hard to say where the Red Army would have stopped, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> No kidding. Like, like maybe at the German-French border, you know, maybe. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think militarily, part, one of the things was, of course, you know, they didn't want to wake up Hitler and all that. And, but, but you know, they had concentrated, they had to concentrate a lot of their, their heavy artillery on, on the Eastern Front because of the Russians. And, uh, you know, th- thus there was, there was more reluctance to move more artillery and, and so on uh, to, the, uh, to the West. Yeah, that's right. You know, one statistic that's in this Roberts book um, that I, that was striking, I thought, is that of, of of all the German soldiers who died in World War II, four out of five died on the Eastern Front. Exactly, exactly. And I think you'd find a comparable number, not quite as high a percentage, but back to the context, uh, Stalin thought, you know, you guys ought to do something because I'm, I'm losing more men than anybody. And he was right. Russians. He had a point. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about the fact that 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 our perspective on World War II is a little bit skewed. You know, we tend to see yeah. it from our, the perspective of our involvement it's from the West. You know, the, the truth is that the main fighting took place in the East. Yeah, no, I I, I would imagine a, a Russian skeptic, even if today, saying, what are you carrying on about, you know, 4,000 casualties at Omaha Beach? You know, we lost 50, 60, 80,000 a day, you know? Yep. They slaughtered each other there. Stalingrad, Leningrad, unbelievable. Uh, all right, let's let's move on. A lot of things to talk to John Hinderocker about. Candace Owens, tell us uh, about your dinner and what Candace Owens had to say. Yeah, so so I'm president, of course, of Center of the American Experiment, and Bill, you've graced several of our events with your uh, presence and 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 giving speeches. Um, Thank you. Thank and we had our annual dinner um, just a couple week weekends ago. Wonderful event. We had about 940 people there um, in downtown Minneapolis, and um, and Candace Owens was the was the featured speaker. This is the second time she's spoken for us. Just about exactly a year ago, she did a lunch forum for us that attracted like 550 people, which is you know wow, like a record. Yeah. A, oh man, oh man, it was nuclear. And, um, and 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 she was just really getting started at that time as a as a national presence. 
And of course, she's had a year to, you know, to continue polishing her skills. And um, she is so good. Um, and and, and I, I wrote about it a little bit on Powerline. I put up some, you know, like 30 second to one minute clips of her. And, and the thing that's striking to me is that, as I, as I said on Powerline, you know, I, why is she so controversial? I mean, everything she says, your mother would have considered to be sheer common sense. Like what? Oh, you know, the, the whole, you know, her most basic theme is uh, self-determination for minorities and especially uh, black people. And, and one of her formulas that she's been using for a long time is, wouldn't you rather be a victor than a victim? Yeah. Why yeah. do you want to be yeah. a victim? You know, uh, there's, there's no, you know, there's no one keeping you down. Um, if you work hard and, and use your head, you know, you can get ahead in life. And she herself is such a positive presence and such a shining example of that, you know. Um, she, she has so much credibility, I think, in, 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 in talking to the African-American community. And she's got the courage to really stand up to uh, groups like Black Lives Matter. Yeah. She knows all yeah. the statistics on police shootings and so on. And um, and she really calls them out uh, for the damage they do to the African-American community uh, and for the unfairness of their attacks uh, uh, most of the time on, on police officers. So, so you know, it, it, she, it, most of what she says, you, you sit there kind of nodding your head and thinking, why, who, who exactly disagrees with this? And, and and of course, you know she, she's she's so skillful, and, and how she got this skillful? She just turned thirty, you know, so it's not due to vast experience. But she doesn't like to write speeches. Uh, she gets up and starts talking, and obviously she's got riffs, she's got themes, she's got facts and stories and so on. But she really every speech is different. It's tailored to the audience. It, it's it's based in part on her perception of audience reaction, you know. And, uh, you know, she says she'd get bored if she had to give the same speech over and over again. So so a lot of it is um, is impromptu. And yeah. she, she does it very, very effectively. Well, she's picking up material every day, I'm sure, because I'm sure she gets yeah. a lot of comments at airports and wherever she goes. I saw her in a debate the other night on uh, Laura Ingram's show with Cornell West, and uh, she was he was kind of fuzzy, let's put it g- gently, kind of, you know, um, yeah, fuzzy. I guess I want to say cloudy, fuzzy. A little, you know. What? What's he? What did he say? And she was direct and straightforward and to the point in declarative sentences. You know. I spent some time with her um, uh, privately, uh, Bill, just in connection with these two events. You know, my wife and I drove her down to a nearby college after the lunch forum that she did for us, where she gave a speech in the evening. Then we drove her back to her hotel, and and again at the annual dinner. You know, I had the, the opportunity to spend some some time with her at a more kind of personal level. And I think she's great. As far as I can tell, she is totally authentic, totally sincere, just a, a marvelous uh, person. Did you talk to her about um, sacred conversations or whatever it is that's happening in Minneapolis about, you know, about your, horrid, your horrid history of race relations there? Unbelievable, isn't it, Bill? You know, she she was that she was gone before that hit the news. And in fact, I'll tell you an inside story about that, Bill. I wouldn't have known about this except that Mitch Perlstein and I, you know, your good friend Mitch, founder of my organization, my good friend, now still working for us on a part time basis. Uh, just published a book recently, but so so Mitch and I got an email from a reporter at the Minneapolis Star Tribune sending along a flyer for this 
series of events they were putting on for the for the city staff, employees of the city of Minneapolis. And it was these so-called sacred conversations about the 400th anniversary of the first arrival of Africans in Jamestown, Virginia. And so it's all about racism and slavery, blah, blah, blah. And, and they were going to have separate sessions um, conducted by their racial equity, whatever, which they have several of, apparently, at the city of Minneapolis. One for white-bodied employees and another for black-bodied employees. I see. <laughs> it was so stupid. Uh, so she sent it to me. And to Can't Michigan. you just say white people and black people? No, no, no. Apparently this is a new thing, right, Bill? Okay, I mean, right. yeah, this is, this is uh, we're, we're cutting edge here in the city of Minneapolis, right? Gotcha. White-bodied okay. and black-bodied. You're starting to see that formula more. So she sent it to Mitch Perlstein and me and asked if one of us would like to comment for an article on it. I emailed Mitch and I said, frankly, Mitch, I'm not sure anything I said would be printable. Uh, why don't you take this one? You know, Mitch is better at this kind of thing than I am. So he so he talked to the reporter at some length. The story was in the Star Tribune this morning. Mitch was quoted in a couple of sentences worth. Um, and and the, the news is that they have... Um, they, they've put these sessions back. Uh, they're going to be rescheduled, but the city, the spokesman for the city, vows that they're going to go on. And, and what's the point of all this? I can't imagine, Bill. Oh. You know, I wrote about this on Powerline. The, the, theoretically, according to this flyer, this is somehow supposed to enable these people to do their jobs as, you know, uh, you know, motor vehicle clerks, or I don't know what, you know, better. <laughs> Well, we could use motor vehicle clerks doing a better job. I'll say that. Well, that's for sure. I just don't think this is going to achieve it. Well, so A, that's just stupid on its face, but B, so so why are they having separate sessions for white-bodied and black-bodied people? Do they have different jobs at the city? Are they expected to do their jobs in different ways? You know, I I don't don't get that. So the whole thing is just, and and there's, there's a level of, it, it seems particularly insulting because, as you know, Bill, the state of Minnesota joined the Union in 1858, just in time for the Civil War. Minnesota volunteered the first soldiers, uh, oh, Fort yeah. Sumter, the very first soldiers to volunteer for service in the Union Army. Yeah. Yeah. Minnesota volunteers fought in some of the most heroic and still remembered, still storied yeah. uh, units in, in the That's Civil right. War right. to, to preserve the Union and to abolish slavery. And I'm not sure why, you know, the state of Minnesota should have, you know, 400-year-old slave history hung around its neck. Yeah, all right. Well, I, I don't know. I do know that apart from the stuff you laugh at, like white-bodied, black-bodied, as opposed to white and black, <clears throat> apart from that, I, I do know from, and I've known this, I think, from the time I wrote my book in the late 60s uh, or late 70s, that um, the more you draw attention to race, the more problem you're going to have. The more, you know, the yeah. more differences that you describe. And when you divide people into white and black, you're asking for, you know, you're asking for more trouble. You know, you're not asking for an honest conversation about race. You're asking for exacerbating differences, it seems to me. Well, it's so sad, Bill. You and I are old enough to, to think back to, you know, 40, 50 years ago. Did you ever imagine, you know, in circa 1970, that uh, 50 years later, race relations in the United States would be worse? No, it never did. Never did. Listen, related to that, a touchy, touchy topic. I saw it broke through on Real Clear. Martin Luther King, David Garrow, what, what, what about this? 
you know, I wrote about that. Um, and and I, there's a lot, you, a lot of things you could say about it. One thing I would say is that... Fill in the audience here on... Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Sorry, this, this, this is the, this, these new revelations about Martin Luther King and some things that were on the FBI wiretaps. Uh, and, 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 you know, his sexual ex- escapades have been known for a long time. I knew about those decades ago. But this is worse than that. Uh, this is some very, very bad stuff uh, involving a woman being raped, apparently, in his presence with him encouraging the rapist on and, and some, you know, some really, some really bad group sex kind of stuff and, and so forth. Um, and and, and I, I guess the recordings are going to be made public. These are transcripts that were sort of languishing somewhere that this Pulitzer Prize winning biographer of King uh, came across and now feels obligated to write about because they change his view of, of, and, and of Martin. He, and he celebrated Martin Luther King. He was a huge fan. Yeah, of Martin right. King. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. He wrote a very celebratory biography. That's exactly right. He's a, he's a liberal, um, but but an honest historian. And apparently, the transcripts of these are not the transcripts. The, the transcripts are he he came across, but the audio recordings themselves at some point are going to be public, and then people will be able to hear exactly what it is, you know, uh, and judge for themselves. But, but, but there are a couple of points that I made that are, I guess, fairly obvious. One is, uh, you know, you can be a great man and have terrible faults. Sure. You know, uh, Martin Luther King did some great things in his public uh, service, his public life. Right. He was a terribly, terribly flawed person. And we already knew that, honestly. One thing we already knew, Bill, is that he plagiarized his Ph.D. dissertation. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, this was publicly acknowledged in the early 90s. I, I knew about it before, before that. And, and, the, and he plagiarized another divinity student at Boston University who had written his dissertation just a few years earlier. It's almost impossible, at least when I saw them side by side and read about this years ago, going from memory now. But my reaction was that it was almost impossible that the Ph.D. advisors at Boston University would not have realized that he copied this other student's dissertation. Yeah. And, 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 I, and I, I, you know, I wonder whether because he was the son of this famous, powerful clergyman in Atlanta, you know, if, if maybe they deliberately gave him a pass on his, on his Ph.D. I don't know. But in any event, the, the plagiarism has been out there for, for quite a while, and now we have you know, this other this sort of Me Too angle. But, but, but that doesn't change what he did that was important, right. uh, you know, his, his public work. It, you know, it doesn't change it. And I think we, sh- you know, we shouldn't treat these people as saints. We shouldn't treat George Washington as a saint, although he was a heck of a lot closer than Martin Luther King. <laughs> you know, yeah, if there's anybody yeah. who in his personal life was, by golly, about as upright as you're ever going to find, you know, it was George Washington. But the other thing that I, I said on Powerline is that, you know, a person ought not idolize um, someone he doesn't know. You know, if you're going to have uh, somebody you really look up to in your life, you know, let it be the father that gets up and trudges off to work every day for you. Yeah. Let it be the, your mother who takes care of you when you're sick. You know, I, I had dinner one time with somebody who was so crestfallen when Tiger Woods problems came to light and, and talked about how he'd so yeah. idolized yeah. You know, yeah. Tiger yeah. Well, don't, don't idolize people that you don't know, you know. Yeah. I think that's. Yeah. That's always a. a uh, this might be interesting to you. Uh, my wife Elaine, you know Elaine a little bit. She works in schools in the inner city, and she has people come in and talk to the kids. And she realized the need for a distinction 
between people she brought in as role models, A, and B, as mentors. Mentor is somebody who can teach you something. Role model is someone you should model yourself after. And Martin Luther King would have a lot to teach us as a personal role model. If this stuff is true, maybe not. Here, here, yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a, a very good way of, of looking at it. Here's the problem. I, I was going through the introduction of my book, America Last Best Hope. I'm turning it into one volume, John. It'll be out in October. And in the intro, I talk about influence of important people in American life. And I talk about civil rights, and I say, you know, <clears throat> Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, told us to look into our souls. I'm going to change that sentence because look into our souls is too close for comfort now, given what we've just read. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Soul, of course, is a religious term, you know, and uh, it's like, you know, we were laughing about these these sacred conversations they were going to have at the city of Minneapolis, sacred conversations among city staff. I think maybe we should stay away from the sacred. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not okay. sure that, that, that maybe this is the right context to be talking about souls. Maybe yep. we should save talk about souls for, for church, you know, synagogue. You know, um, that's a great point. But let me just tell you one other thing. I'm sorry to, I don't want to monopolize your interview, but this is very close to my heart. I went, to, I went down to um, the colleges in Atlanta and um, spoke down there um, at Morehouse and and the others. And Mrs. King was there. And I referred in my talk throughout to the Reverend Martin Luther King, not to Dr. Martin Luther King. She came up to me afterwards and said, thank you so much for referring to Martin as Reverend. That's what he thought he, uh, he was. Of, that's what he thought he was at heart, a minister of the faith, a minister of Jesus Christ. I said, well, thank you very much. So that spiritual thing with King, the soul, was uh, with that conversation kind of imprinted in my mind, and so it was hard for me to remove that sentence. Understand? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. And I mean, to be to be honest, Bill, there is a level of hypocrisy when when your preferred title is reverend, and some of these things start coming to light. You bet. You bet. What will happen? Will will liberal left historians let the truth be out? The only thing I'd add to your uh, notions. Here is a man big enough to be a hero for an age is big enough to have the truth told about him. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not one who takes enjoyment, you know, from publicizing the foibles of public man. We have too much of that. No, too much of that. The problem in this case, of course, is that is that King, the phrase secular saint has often been applied to yeah, him, and, yeah. and understandably, you know, he's got his own holiday, and he's talked about him yeah. in, in those ways. And, and, of course, the founders no longer are. Nobody talks about Thomas Jefferson that way, right? Uh, right. And, uh, no, I know. I know. And, and, and you know, you know a, a more contemporary example is Donald Trump. I mean, you know, if you ask the liberals why they hate Trump sure. so much, they'll sure. start talking about his personal failings, those in his tweets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, you know what? I'll tell you something. Uh, Martin Luther King's personal failings were worse than Donald Trump's. Yeah, yeah I know. So, so can we kind of take that out of the equation, okay. you know, and, 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 um, and, and focus, if we're going to talk about public people, on, on, on their actions? Yeah, yeah. That's a, yeah, yeah. It's a hard one for me. There was a time uh, back in the 80s when I thought, you know, Colin Powell should run. I mean, he was too liberal for me on a lot of issues, but I thought role model, and I think he is a role model in a lot of ways. In some ways not. But, um, you know, I just thought 
statecraft to soulcraft. But but you're right, John. It's very tricky territory. You get someone in there because of his sterling character, and then you find out, my God, he's fallible too. Well, and worse than fallible, we're all fallible, you know. But I yeah, mean, so this stuff yeah. is this stuff is you know it's pretty bad. Chekhov says every saint has a past, every sinner has a future. You know. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Last topic with you. You've been very generous, John Hinderocker, and this is great. We love talking to you, and the audience loves you. We'll send you some emails they send about you, but you get a lot of mail anyway. Tell me about this fascinating Stephen Cohen, uh, Russian leftist, right, leftist scholar on Russia, married to Katrina Vanden Heuvel, correct? Is that right? Yeah, right. The heiress. The who runs the, uh, the Nation magazine. The Aris uh, Van, Van den Heuvel. This is a, this would make a great movie. Anyway, tell us what Stephen Cohen, the leftist, is saying about the Democrats. Yeah, I got to call this up. I wrote about this on... Uh, on Powerline. But yeah, Stephen Cohen, so he wrote this in the nation, you know, which is sort of the last bastion of, of communism, I guess, in the United States. Right, that's, right. that's there. But but he's talking about um, uh, the, uh, uh, the 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 Mueller report and the and, and the deep state and the attacks on Trump, right? Wasn't that the the uh the that's right. That's right. That's right. And uh and and really taking uh, taking Trump's side. I don't know if you're like this, Bill, but I've gotten to an age where I've written so much stuff and have spent so many hours kind of swimming around in the news and so forth that even if it's something I wrote myself day before yesterday, I can call it up. <laughs> when you get to the point where you can remember the stuff but you can't remember that you wrote it, yeah, that, that that's that's even worse. You know, that happened to me uh, a couple of times during my law career. As you know, Bill, I practiced law, did litigation for just over 40 years. And in my law firm, we had a, we had a, a searchable brief bank where our, our secretaries, when we wrote briefs, would, would uh, classify them, you know, uh, by topic and put them in the brief bank and so on. And there were a couple of times when, when uh, I would do some research to see what, what we, my firm had already written on a particular subject, and I'd be reading a brief, and I'd be thinking, oh, this is pretty good stuff. You know, yeah, this is, this is good. I like this. I could use this. And I, get, <laughs> and I get to the end, and I, and I find I wrote it. Brilliant. <laughs> like, like, uh, like 10 years earlier. Here's the punchline. Here's the punchline. Stephen Cohen, a leftist writing in The Nation, or writing in his book, um, U.S. intelligence agencies undertook an operation to damage, if not destroy, first the candidacy and then the presidency of Donald Trump. More evidence of intel gate has since appeared. This is still Cohen. For example, the intelligence community has said it began its investigation in April 2016 because of a few innocuous remarks by a young, lowly Trump foreign policy advisor, George Papadopoulos. Um, he tells a little story about Papadopoulos. He goes on, to, Cohen goes on to explore the dishonorable role of the press. And then there's this great quote from him that you cite. We are left then with this paradox formulated in a tweet on May 24 by the British journalist John O'Sullivan. Spygate, listen to this, folks. Spygate is the first American scandal in which the government wants the facts published, but the media want to cover them up. 
<laughs> right, right. Wow. So a friend of mine, yes, a friend of mine emailed me a link to that piece in the nation and pulled out that quote, and I said, "Oh my gosh, I got to put that up." Yeah, and it is. It's a great quote, and it's absolutely true. It's just I know. stunning. It is absolutely stunning for things to be so topsy-turvy that the government is trying to get facts out there and the press is trying to cover them up. It, it's, it's just stunning. And, and you know, Bill, as, as, the, as facts dribble out about this, this effort by the FBI, the CIA, the Department of Justice that extended over a couple of years, uh, it's just shocking. And, and I, I, I've asked myself, what's more shocking? You know, the first thing they did is they tried to help guarantee that Hillary Clinton would win the election. And I think they did that in part because they thought that when she was president, you know, uh, that she would kind of pat him on the back for this. This would be, you know, this would be uh, credit credit for them. But then after the Trump won the election, and he's now the president-elect. That's when they really swing into action, trying to undermine him as president-elect, trying to nip his administration in the bud, make it difficult or impossible to get off the ground. And then they kept it up after he was sworn in as president. And I don't know what's worse uh, for, for the FBI and, and these other agencies to intervene in a, in, a, in a presidential election on behalf of one of the candidates. I think it might be even worse that, that when the election is over, they continue their effort now to try to undermine the new president, uh, these, these holdovers, you know, from the Obama administration. I mean, yeah, it sound like the president. This is an attempt to overthrow the government of the United States by peaceful yeah, means, I, though. It, it, it is it is like a kind of a slow motion, cool. peaceful coup. And, and that's yeah. the biggest scandal in American history. I, I don't know yes, what, what even comes close. I agree. Any traction uh, on the left is, or is Cohen pretty much on his own on this? You know, it's really interesting, Bill. Um, I was on Dennis Prager's radio show not long ago. Yeah. And, you know, Dennis likes to talk about, great guy, of course. He, he likes the left and the liberals, about, right? Yeah, exactly. You know where I'm going with this. Yeah, exactly right. He likes to distinguish between the liberals who are, we disagree with them, but they're, you know, they're good Americans, they're our friends, and the, and the left, which is dishonest and, you know, dictatorial and so forth. And I understand the distinction, you know, I, I, I agree with the distinction, but what I want to know, Bill, is where are the liberals? I, right. I see the leftists all around us. Where are the honest Democrats? Where yeah. are the honest liberals? Who are willing to call out the left uh, and and be on the side of truth, to be on the side of America, yeah. you know, be on the side of fairness? I don't know. You tell me, Bill. What do you think? I, I'm just not seeing it. It's funny you put it that way because I was just asking. Look, look at this case of the left calling out the liberals, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, Cohen. That's it's kind of ironic. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. Here it's the it's, yeah right. It's the left calling out the leftists, or at least leftists who masquerade as liberals, but. I, I, what do you think, Bill? I mean, I, I keep waiting for, for honest Democrats to come out and say, wait a minute, time out. Well, you saw what happened when a couple of them said time out out in San Francisco. They got booed. You yeah. know, you yeah. know they got booed. Yeah. Socialism is not the way to go. Boom. Right. Well, I think to see where the Democratic Party is at and where it's going, uh, just look at what all of the uh, presidential contenders are doing. Right. That's right. You know, uh, Joe Biden, supposedly, I think, frankly, I think Joe Biden is kind of a joke, but right. has been for a long time. But, you know, he supposedly is the mainstream, sane, sensible, 
middle of the road <laughs> alternative. Well, you know, he put out some some goofy climate thing that wasn't crazy enough, and he immediately retracted it. And now he's signed on to the Green New Deal. You know, oh, yeah. Did uh, you see that, though, the latest climate thing that he just did that apparently it was, excuse the expression, plagiarized? <laughs> right. I know it. I know it. It's like they had to, they had to change, change his position so hastily they didn't have time to rewrite some of the quotes. <laughs> Who's got a good position here? We'll just put it in. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Copy and paste. Copy and paste, Bill. John, one uh, of the reasons you don't remember the stuff you do is you do so much. You do an enormous amount, and we love having you on. Thank you so, so much. Oh, thank you, Bill. It's always fun. You have a great day. And you're doing it. You're shining your light there in Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I don't know, am I in worst place in, inside the Beltway? I don't know. you got kind of a swamp there, too, don't you? Well, it's kind of a swamp, but then we got greater Minnesota. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a big, wide state. Yeah, right. um, yeah, it's a whole state. And, yeah. uh, and, and, and I love it, although I'm, I'm, I'm certainly attuned to its faults. Uh, last question, real quick. We had uh, the attorney general came to dinner at our house. What do you think of the attorney general these days? He's doing a great job, doing, and he's making it. a sacrifice. You know, here's a guy who, who's already been AG once before, yeah. had a very distinguished career, needs this like a hole in the head, you know, and he knew the kind of abuse he was going to be taking if he did the right thing. Doesn't care. And, doesn't care what they say about him. Doesn't care. No, he's doing it anyway. I, I think he's doing a tremendous job. Me too. Me too. Thank you, sir. Thank you, John. Thank you, Bill. Bye-bye. Carry on, man. Bye. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. It's time to welcome Robert Costa to the show. He's a national political reporter for The Washington Post, a political analyst for NBC News and MSNBC, and the moderator of Washington Week on PBS. Good to be with you, Dr. Bennett. Good to be with you, sir. So what is your beat? Cover national politics, the campaign, Congress, and the White House. Okay, let's start with Donald Trump, President of the United States. I think you were pretty hard on him in his trip to London and Ireland and Normandy so far. So far, President Trump is in some ways following the traditional playbook of a president abroad. He's meeting with our longtime allies. He's projecting confidence about the U.S. position on many issues. Uh, But he's also meddling, in a sense, with some of the nationalist strains that are capturing Europe. You see him meeting with Nigel Farage, the head of the Brexit Party in the U.K. But he's not going full-throated nationalist like someone uh, in his administration has in the past, Steve Bannon. And so you see President Trump trying to navigate a lot of different dynamics while he's abroad. Uh, remember what happened at D-Day, remember what happened in World War II, and at the same time, to show that the U.S. is not going to be totally internationalist in its perspective on all of these different issues, but still not be totally isolated either. Seems to me on the, quote, presidential stuff, the standard presidential stuff, the ceremonial stuff, the speeches, the other things, he's done just fine. No? Yes? Uh, so far, uh, he, he's okay. made a lot of controversy with his interviews ahead of time when he was asked about the Duchess of Sussex, when he was asked about the London mayor. So the tweets have been very controversial. But you're right. In big, in the big picture of it all, on policy, he has not made any kind of major controversy, but he has generated the usual Trumpian controversy on Twitter. But on those two, uh, didn't, as we say in school, didn't uh, Mayor Khan start it? Uh, Mayor Khan wrote an op-ed in The Guardian critiquing President Trump. He tied him to fascists from Europe back in the 1930s and 1940s. And so certainly a provocative message from the London mayor, President Trump uh, fighting back 
as he always says, uh, not cooling the waters in any sense, but uh, defending his own position. Well, he's a counterpuncher, right? I mean, he does. I mean, if the guy calls him a fascist, uh, you know he's going to hit back. And that's a pretty strong thing, right? It is pretty strong language, and it's not unusual. The London mayor has made comments like this over the past year. The president okay. is much more friendly with the former London mayor, Boris Johnson, and has been pretty careful in trying to be supportive of Johnson, but not overwhelm Johnson with enthusiasm because he knows Johnson's in the midst of running uh, for prime minister in the conservative party race over there. Yeah, well, that, see, on that, that seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, Robert, but that seems to me, you said, you know, he's not going to be so internationalist. He's going to be more nationalist, but not so overboard. Seems to me he's hit the Goldilocks middle about right. Doesn't want to go overboard for Johnson to hurt his chances, but wants to make it plain that he's supportive of Brexit. Thus, the, thus the stuff with Nigel Farage. It's, it's been an evolution for President Trump. You think back to 2016, and I covered when Nigel Farage used to come meet with then-candidate Trump. There was a certain kind of buoyant nationalism to the Trump campaign that has remained in some respects in the presidency, but it hasn't been the animating factor of this presidency. And so the, the president sees these forces throughout Europe with Brexit, with the rise of the Brexit party, Nigel Farage, with Boris Johnson's ascent, uh, and he sees allied political figures, even if they're part of they're not Republicans per se. They're part of this reaction to the global economy, this interest in focusing on immigration as an answer and, and putting up walls or stricter restrictionist immigration policy as a way to address some of these concerns that are out there among frustrated voters across the world. And so he sees kindred spirits. Uh, but he is it's, it's notable for President Trump, who does these incendiary tweets on the London mayor. He has been more careful in how he's handling uh, Boris Johnson and uh, Nigel Farage. He met with Farage privately, and he has been uh, pretty uh, picking his, his words uh, judiciously in interviews about Boris. And now with uh, Meghan Markle, I forget, she's the Duchess of something. I can't remember what she's the Duchess of, but I don't follow the royal stuff too too close. I'm an Irishman, you know, I don't, I don't care for the, about that stuff. Anyway, <laughs> um, but... Um, Again, she started it, right? Albeit in 2016, she said she'd leave the country if Trump were elected and some other things. She was kind of nasty about him, wasn't she? Or downright nasty. She was critical of candidate Trump, no doubt about it. And this comes back to your point about the London mayor, Dr. Bennett, the counterpuncher. The president was asking in an interview, what did he think about Meghan Markle, now the Duchess of Sussex? What does he think about her comments from 2016? He said, well, she was nasty to me. And then his use of that word in response got, got coverage, which angered him, as it usually does. He used the word, but he used the word in response to a question about her own comments. This led to some friction, at least in terms of the news coverage. But it's a, it's a very typical Trump controversy. He, he believes he's responding to a question. It's often about criticism of him. He defends himself. And then he doesn't like when news coverage of these dramas of these confrontations gets a lot of play uh, and then he blames the media for overheating it but but robert if if someone says the things she said about him and you and 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 then he says he's nasty i mean is, is that just such a horrible word horrible term to use i mean she was nasty well it's a it's a word that in this day and age uh feminism uh, modern modern uh, world is uh, often okay shunned to use the word nasty in any context with women. Right, because uh, that may mean not just uh, unpleasant comments, word. but loose morals or something, right? Right, it has connotations that could, nasty could be yeah. a variety of things. It's a word I would stray from using in any kind of context with women, for 
example, because of the connotations I know people carry with it. I'm not speaking for the president or anyone else. I don't know what he thinks the connotations are. Yeah, look, he's 73. I'm 75. When I heard the nasty, I wasn't thinking of the modern thing. I, I, I don't have any reason to think he'd be up on that. He's someone who who doesn't shy away at all from these kind of fights. He actually seems to welcome them. You saw the Piers Morgan interview. He, he, sure. well, he, it's the royal family. He's not treading lightly at all. It, if it's controversy, it's okay. No, it's a sharp retort, but I don't think he meant anything more than nasty in the old meaning of the term. But let's let's get off that. Let's move on. Uh, you had a long piece about Larry Hogan, my former governor. I used to live in Maryland. I hang out here now a lot, but my residence is North Carolina. Uh, as we said, former residents of Maryland say I enjoyed about as much of this as I could stand. But um, I, Hogan, so he's not running, right, and doesn't know doesn't think anybody else will, I guess, except Bill Weld. Is that basically it to challenge Trump? Bill Weld's running the former Massachusetts governor. Right. Long story short, I went to Annapolis a few months ago and met with Governor Hogan just as a reporter wondering, is this some, is this, could, could this happen? Could there be a real primary challenge from the center in this Republican Party? Usually primary challenges come from the right. This one would have been from the center. He was waiting, it seemed, for the Mueller report to come out, for some other things to, to play out. He wanted to see if the Republican voter would ever desert President Trump. The economy turned, the Mueller report turned up anything that was outside of the the bounds that we had been discussing at least a few months ago. And now that the Mueller report's out and the Republicans are in lockstep with President Trump in every poll, the the path for someone like Governor Hogan, who's a sitting governor, to not be a gadfly, to be a serious contender, it really just wasn't there. And so he, he called me a few days ago and said, I'm just not going to do it. He had talked to people like Bill Crystal for a while, the never Trump wing. But he told me in the interview, he didn't want to be a never Trump candidate. He was willing to be kind of a mainstream in his eyes, a Reaganite, traditional candidate on foreign policy, national security, economic issues. Uh, but he didn't want to just be an anti-Trump candidate. And a lot of his support uh, was from that wing of the party. And so he wasn't running to do it or really, it wasn't about the idea of getting Larry Hogan out there or just to, to run. He wanted to see if there was a path and he looked at it all. He had top advisors like Rush Schrieper, who's worked for Chris Christie and Mitt Romney. And they just, they showed him the data and there wasn't a path. Yeah, sure. And there's no path for Weld either, is there? Weld, Weld at this point is someone who, if he even gets President Trump to engage in a primary debate, it would be a success. If anything, Weld could do a John Kasich-type campaign in New Hampshire. Remember, Kasich last time got, what, 10, 15, 20 percent. Maybe there's that there's that constituency in New Hampshire for a protest candidacy, but you don't see Weld picking up any steam nationally, at least at the moment. Remember, Weld's not just a Republican. He's a former libertarian vice presidential candidate. He's someone who's drifted politically a lot, so it's hard to see how Weld builds at this point in his career and in this dynamic in the Republican Party. Yeah, I should say, begin, I'm not crazy about the challenge to Trump and some of the things he said. I'm a, I'm a Trump supporter, but but I have a lot of admiration for Bill Weld, the old Bill Weld. Um, this was the Bill Weld who brought about, with the help of a couple other people, the Massachusetts Miracle. I don't know if you know about that, but it was the best set of state reforms in education the country has ever seen in, in modern history. And if Massachusetts had been a state in the late 90s, early 2000s, Robert, um, it would have been 10th in the world. They uh, they did it, and they did it really well. But, you know, his appeal, he I, I was at Harvard when he was at Harvard. Of course, he'd been at Harvard for 29 generations. I was the first person in my family to go to Harvard. Uh, you know, he's a preppy, waspy guy. Uh, 
Remember that uh, Sarge Shriver when he ran for president? You don't remember. You're too young, but you maybe have read it because you read everything. But they took Sarge Shriver. I know to, he ran, but I wasn't around. Right. He, they took him to the bar where, where Cheers used to be filmed. That that may not be familiar to you either, but they told him just to get there and have a drink. And so they, they said, you know, this guy introduced him, said, this is Sarge Shriver, and he's running for president. Sarge, what are you drinking? He said, Cavoisier with a splash. And in and, and, and Boston, that was the end of the campaign, you know? So, I mean, and, and Wells liked that. He's a brilliant guy. He's a really smart guy. But uh, this is a, this is a quixotic um, effort, I think. I don't think any challenge, serious challenge to Trump. Do you see one? I, I think the only person who could do it at this point who has the political capital because they're in elected office and has the experience of being national candidate, I'm not saying they're going to do it at all. The person, if something ever happened with President Trump's popularity, Senator Romney of Utah is kind of hovering around as a, a someone with that kind of profile. Hovering is the right word. That's right. All right. Those some of us have had it with uh, with Governor Romney, but uh, that's 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 a fair point. Let's switch to the Democrats. More fun. So let's start most recently. So Joe Biden came out of hiding. Talked about uh, uh, his new uh, energy plan, getting off fossil fuels. Sounded pretty green to me, but turned out it was plagiarized in part. Is that is that correct? The Washington Post reported that some of his education plan was lifted from other organizations, and his his campaign uh, acknowledged it. You just said education plan. You just said education plan. Uh, it was well. It, it's been a variety of his policy. Oh, plans. okay. I, I believe part, at least I know his edu- part of his education part on his website was was, was plagiarized. I didn't know that. So, you know, when you're on a campaign website and they have all the details of the policy plan, it had not been properly cited or quoted. And the energy and the energy plan as well? Uh, I'm not sure of the details. I apologize. I haven't been. Okay. I'm fully I, following. I thought I thought I read this, that they had to immediately apologize because he shifted so quickly. They had to find some material, and so they didn't properly source it. He's got to be worried about the, the uh, attribution stuff because this hurt him before. Oh, it, 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 it revives all the talk from his 88 run right. when he dealt with the new Kinnick speech. Right, right. Um, what about his candidacy? He's so far ahead. I, I think it's a balloon. And I think the air the air is going to go out. But you know, the we'll Biden s- campaign is going to depend a lot on the debate. Yeah, because so far he's run a very safe campaign in the sense that he's not talking to reporters a lot. He's revealing these policy plans and he's getting making some mistakes with the plagiarism issues. Uh, but on the campaign trail, he's been pretty careful. Uh, he, he's not trying to get too far out of the limb. He's leading every poll. But the debates could show a lot. Is he really ready to be a national candidate in 2019 for this changing Democratic Party? Is he ready to take on President Trump? There's a lot to prove for Biden in a way. He's got a lot of uh, goodwill in the party. But at this point in his political career, there are questions about whether he's really ready to carry this party in a tough race against President Trump. They say traditionally you know, Democrats have to fall in love with a candidate. Can they fall in love with Joe Biden? Like they could fall in love with Pete Buttigieg or a folksy appeal, an appeal to suburban middle America that could help Democrats both feel they have a chance against President Trump and he's a link to the Obama era. And I think that link to the Obama era is something he's he's going to underscore at every turn because that's the way they maybe fall in love with him. It's a a return to what they think is normalcy and uh, normality. And uh, they want to have that kind of candidate maybe back at the top. I don't want to be mean to him. You know, this guy is very good to me, uh, and I don't want to hurt him. But, you know, I, I remind people when they ask me about Biden, I was the first drug czar. I was confirmed by his committee. 
And if he had any criticism of me, he thought I was maybe a little soft on law enforcement. That's not my reputation, you know. But he was he was tough. He was locking up Joe. I'm going to give you more money, he said, for law enforcement, for these predators. I don't know. And the crime bill is an issue that, that yes, sir. sticks with him. He's yes, getting a lot of tough questions about that 94 crime bill. Yes, sir. And, uh, yeah, that's. I think that's going to be something, uh, something that's hard. If he falters, who steps in? Who's next in line? Who steps up? Uh, you have a lot of people like Senator Harris, Senator Sanders. I think you got to put some of them in different buckets in terms of the voters they appeal to immediately. Uh, Pete Buttigieg is catching on and he's gotten attention and a lot of money, and he's more in that Biden wing of the party. He's not articulating a huge progressive overhaul of the American system, but he is in some ways, too. So it's hard to say Buttigieg would pick up Biden's support. It's not as clear-cut as that. Buttigieg is also calling to reform the whole Supreme Court and add justices. So you could say he's not just playing it safe with his ideas. And someone like Senator Warren, she's trying to make a populist pitch that's not just totally liberal and everything, and she's trying to connect with the working class voter in the same way Biden is. So if Biden falls, it could fall to a lot of people, not just to one particular candidate. And I think I'm going to stick to it that I thought Bernie Sanders was still very strong. Uh, partly because he's got support everywhere. I mean, he'll he'll have delegates from everywhere, and uh, you know, I, I, partly on the strength of his people. Like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I don't think... undervalue Senator Sanders at all. I covered him yeah. in 2016. I was on the road with him on his campaign plane for weeks. This is someone who has run a national campaign, and I, I know I've only been a reporter for 10 years, but. I really believe there is value and power to having run a national campaign, whether you're someone like Romney or Bernie Sanders. If you've really been through it and you understand how to hold an arena crowd, you understand what it takes, the pace of travel, fundraising, to be in the fight, it gives you an edge. And, yeah. and Sanders has been there. He is almost, he is not, he didn't almost win, but he came close to being the nominee if he'd won a yeah. few more states. He went all the way to the convention. He carries a, a real reputation for the last few years. He's been one of the most popular Democrats in the country. And, and that's that's real stuff. So he may only have 15, 20 percent in many polls, but he's got support. He's got 15 or 20 percent in most states, right? I mean, and that, that, exactly. can, that can matter. Um, yeah, and the other thing I think is, I mean, if there's any shenanigans or any hint of shenanigans at the convention, his people will go nuts. And, I, you know, they won't go quietly into that good night, I don't think. No, we saw that in Philadelphia in 2016. Right. And they felt they were robbed, and they will fight again to help him out. And it, he put, presents a real problem for some of the other candidates in the race, because they saw he went all the way to the convention with Secretary Clinton. If he's winning delegates along the way, right. he may not quit. Right. This is a movement for him. This is a, this is more than about Senator Sanders. He, he wants to change the country, and uh, he reminds me of Barry Goldwater, in a way. Of, uh-huh, I agree. Goldwater for you. really yeah. wanted to overhaul the Republican Party, change it fundamentally, and it was about those values rather than really winning. And I think Senator Sanders thinks about politics in a similar way. It's not just about the coalition to win certain states or put someone on the ticket. He wants to change the country. Yeah, they said a choice that an echo for Goldwater, but the, one of the problems for Sanders is that the echoes have come early. I mean, one of the ironies here is that his numbers may be down because so many of his ideas have been picked up by other candidates in this race, right? And he, he faces a threat with Senator Warren, 
Yeah. She's out there playing to the same voter. Yeah. She has a lot of plans. She's catching on. She's hurting his vote, and he's hurting her vote. But they, at one point, it's hard to see how both of them survive as the top two. As there's, there's maybe a more moderate candidate, a Klobuchar, a Biden, a Buttigieg. But on the left side of the party, it's, it's hard to see both Sanders and Warren really being the final two. One, one of them has to win out. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, we don't want to take too much of your time. I know you got the whole country to cover and even abroad. But um, those debates, you think, will be very pivotal for sorting out. Oh, the debates are key. 20 candidates on stage, back-to-back nights. If if you can land a line, just one line or two even, you'll get pressed, you'll be seen as doing well. But if you stumble, it's going to be baked in the cake of the consensus, whether that's fair or not. In a crowded field, little things matter. I remember Donald Trump, before he was president, when he got the question from Megyn Kelly at that early debate about his comments about women, and he said, only Rosie O'Donnell. Yeah. And that's probably the only line most people remember from that debate. And debates should be about policy and substance, but in terms of the political effect, they often, those those issues don't carry on. It's really people want to see strength. They want to see yeah. how do you handle yourself under pressure. Two-part question here. They came after Trump. Uh, after you know he was he was winning, didn't didn't hurt him, helped him because he, he fires back. He's a counterpuncher. Will they come after Biden uh, in the first debate? I, it, that is going to be the million dollar question because there's a lot of things you could attack with Biden. You could go after aspects of the Obama administration, and you could you could attack the '94 crime bill. Uh, you could attack the handling of Anita Hill. But will people like Pete Buttigieg or Senator Harris will they attack? the past and be a veiled reference to Biden, or they actually attack Biden. At this point, many of these Democratic candidates seem careful. Uh, They don't want to cause a ruckus, at least at this point in the race. But at some point, you're going to have to cause a ruckus to get attention and stay in. So you could see Biden attack from someone who's maybe polling at 1%, 2%. They say, eh, heck with it. I have no other chance unless I really start to aim for the top and take a shot at the top. Notice Bernie's creating a bit of a ruckus. He, in California, he, 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 you know, underscored the absence of Biden. doesn't overthink anything. Right, okay. (laughs) Okay. Uh, He'll fight any comer, because if you're in his way, you're in the way of his move, and he doesn't, everything's fair in that way. Now, he doesn't take personal shots. Uh, Senator Sanders doesn't get in kind of the personal side of politics very much. Rarely rarely talks about his own personal story, but he will take any kind of political shot if he thinks it's appropriate. All right. Well, this is remarkably good and good of you to give us your time. And I think a lot of our listeners may think, well, the Washington Post can be pretty reasonable, can be pretty fair. And uh, we wanted we wanted to demonstrate that, at least in the person of Robert Costa. Robert, uh, this was all set up to ask you my last two questions. I did ask you the difference between Notre Dame and Lucky Charms, didn't I? (laughs) What is the difference? One deserves to be in a bowl. (laughs) <laughs> Robert is a, Robert is a Notre Dame graduate. I'm just uh, here's my question, my second question. If your alma mater is offered a bowl, will you, as a distinguished and influential alumnus, have the decency to argue we should turn it down the invitation? Oh no, Robert. I, I say bring on any bowl. Wake up the echoes, Doctor. Live in the glory of Our Lady. Live in the okay. Oh, that's not fair. Now you now you're making me anti Catholic. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Bennett. Great well. to talk to you. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. 
You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Okay, that does it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett. Like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Right? right. Yes. Feel free to email the show, and here's where I need some help. I'd love to hear from you. We're getting some good emails, right? We need to catch up on emails. Yeah, we need to take a show to where we just dedicate just, to emails. Yeah, we got some great. We've listeners. got some. Yeah, no, audience right. is growing. Too. Absolutely, it's yeah. Uh, yeah. It's Bill Bennett Podcast at Gmail Please share this podcast with your family and with your friends. Talking over. We'll catch up next week. 